Hello and welcome to the Cumberland Podcast. My name is Chris Fleming. I'm the Adult Ministry Coordinator for the Discipleship Ministry Team of the Ministry Council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and this is our 12th episode, and I'm really excited that I've heard some comments from people that said that this has been a help and so for preaching and for Christian education, so we're going to keep doing this. Uh, tell your friends about it. Let them know that it's a resource uh, that's available for them to help them get started in their week of preparation for ministry and for teaching. Um, before we get started on that, I did want to let everybody know about a resource that you might not think about when you order stuff online. The Cumberland Presbyterian Church has a resource center that is just chock full of different various things that you might be able to use in your ministry or even give as gifts. Uh, if you go to cpcmc.org forward slash store, so again, that's cpcmc.org forward slash s-t-o-r-e, you'll be taken to the webpage of our resource center. You'll be able to find things like Mother's Day cards and Father's Day cards. You'll be able to find hymnals. You'll be able to find uh, different books written both by Cumberland Presbyterians, but then other books as well. You can find gifts of all kinds, candles, whatever you might need. Remember that resource. Uh, if you can put it in your brain instead of going to Lifeway or going to Amazon, maybe take a look at the uh, resource center online. Again, that's cpcmc.org forward slash store, S-T-O-R-E. So yesterday, my wife and I were going to preach at the Mount Sterling Church, and on the way, she said, I need a Bible. I think I might go to Lifeway. And I said, but wait, we have a Cumberland Presbyterian Resource Center that you can find Bibles, various kinds, all kinds of Bibles. So make sure whenever you're having a conversation in your church session or thinking about any kind of gifts, any kind of books, check on the cpcmc.org forward slash store website and see if we don't have what you want, and that would be a way of supporting the church as well. So remember that. All right, so that brings us to our lectionary uh, for Lent 3, Year C, and the passages are Isaiah 55, 1 through 9, Psalm 63, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 17, and then Luke 13, 1 through 9. As I've been doing this now, like I said, for about 12 weeks, I've tried to find some unifying themes in the lectionaries. It's become apparent that almost every week, a major theme in Scripture is a very simple theme, and that's there are two ways to live. When I think about all the times I've visited people in jail or in the hospital or in counseling settings, even going to school, uh, really it comes down to how are you going to live in this situation are you going to live in light of God's promises and faith, or are you going to try to make your own way? Are you going to choose God's will, or are you going to choose the path of human wisdom? And the Bible says this in various ways. So in, in the Psalms, you hear things like a tree planted by the water as opposed to a dried up bush. Paul says things like, set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Um, Proverbs talks about a way of wisdom and a way of folly. In the Old and New Testament, you'll hear things, uh, don't seek bread that does not fill, but seek bread that fills you, right? Psalms and Proverbs both talk about the way of life or the way of death, the path of sinners or the way of the righteous. Ultimately, Christ crystallizes this teaching by saying, whoever seeks to save their life shall lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake shall save it. Ultimately, we come down to the choice of whether we will submit to God and Jesus Christ and everything that entails, or we simply deny the idea of submitting to Christ and we construct our own way 
Proverbs talks about this when the writer says, There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is in death. And we human beings are complex creatures. Most of the time, what we think and what we do are on different levels. And I believe that's why scripture is chock full of metaphors and symbolism. Metaphor and symbolism allows you to chew on things and inspires a great picture in your mind of what could be or what should be. And I've also come to the conclusion that the greatest thing that a preacher can do is inspire a vision in someone's life that aids them to living a life worthy of Christ. When a vision is caught, we begin to see earthly things are pale imitations of heavenly things, and that earthly matters like vengeance and power are not worth pursuing when abundant and joyful life is offered in Jesus Christ. So the unifying themes this week, one of them is call on the Lord and forsake your evil ways. Right? So cling to God or cling to the world. Live right, or you can be like the Israelites in the wilderness. Repent or perish. These are all things that come uh, from the scripture readings today. A second thing, theme that, uh, that we can see is repentance in its classic sense. It's a turning from sin and a turning toward God. In Isaiah, we're told to forsake our ways and seek the Lord. In the psalm passage, there is a warning toward those uh, that seek the life of the psalmist. So the psalmist is used as a person who is totally in love with God, and the enemies are viewed as people who are away from God. In the Corinthians passage, we're warned not to be like the Israelites who were disobedient and died. We're told to flee from idolatry and turn to God for strength. And of course, our Luke passage, uh, which in no uncertain terms says, repent or perish. Right? So, big theme there. A third theme is seeking abundance in God. In the Isaiah passage, everyone is invited to come and drink. Come and eat at a great banquet with no money, no food. The parched psalmist is satisfied in a rich feast. And Paul uses communion, or the Lord's Supper, as a backdrop to the inclusion into a great family of God. Now, this theme works in the reverse uh, in the gospel. So, by that I mean because there is wickedness, there's no fruit, there is no uh, feast in the fig tree. So, in other words, abundance is found in God, and scarcity is the way of those who turn away from God. So, we'll go on to the specific text Isaiah 55 is one of my favorite passages. It's one of those passages that call us to imagine a higher way of living or thinking. Uh, it seeks to transform us by inviting us to imagine a life in God. So verses uh, 1 through 5 contrast a life pursued with the purpose of living in fellowship with God with a life lived in exile from God. This chapter of Isaiah is one of the consolation uh, chapters and it's to give hope and inspiration to the exiled Israelites after they have been carted off to Babylon. If you're on the conservative side, which I find myself on this uh, particular um, issue, you, you understand that Isaiah died before the fall of Jerusalem. So the, th the preceding parts of Isaiah is a warning to the Israelites about their disobedience and that they were about to be destroyed by God. It was a warning, warning, warning. And I guess there came a point to where Isaiah uh, was inspired to write comfort because he knew that maybe the Israelites had gone too far. The truth of the matter is, is that they had been living, the Israelites had been living in exile from God for a very long time before Jerusalem was destroyed, and they were taken into exile. They were pursuing bread that didn't fill them up, is the way the text would say it. In fact, it was the bread that was destroying them. They just didn't know it. They were exiled from God. 
They were living in a society where everything was good and everything was at their fingertips. They could have it all, and so they forgot God, and they then were exiled from God. God was not on their minds, much like our culture today. We have everything we want, but maybe nothing we need. So verse 2, then, is the key where Isaiah says, Why do you spend your earthly money on things that are not bread, things that, you know, things that can ultimately not satisfy you? In other words, why spend so much effort and time working for things that will ultimately turn to dust? This time you could bring in some theology from Ecclesiastes here. I love the passage in Ecclesiastes, which basically says, I'm working my butt off for a lot of things, but I'm going to die, and I'm going to leave it to my children who are going to squander it away. Why would I ever do that? If you want to check that, it's the Ecclesiastes passage, chapter 2, starting at 18. You work so hard, you leave it to somebody who hadn't earned it. A smoke. It's a vanity. So spitting in the wind is what Ecclesiastes says, and it's it's true. Or you can listen to God, and in fellowship with God, you can uh, delight in rich food. Right. So this is the good stuff of life. Storing up treasures in heaven is the way Jesus would say it. We can work for food that spoils, or we can work for food that endures and fills us. Now, in verse 3 and 4, God reminds the Israelites of David. David was nothing, if you remember. He was the youngest of his brothers. He was not even thought as worthy to be presented to Samuel. But God's covenant with David was sure and faithful. He went from being a shepherd of no importance to a king warrior. He brought Israel to national prominence, international prominence, worldly prominence, if you will. God's relation to David was a witness to the Israelites of his power, love, and, and his trustworthiness. So when God says, come and eat, it's not just a promise that is flippantly made, but God says, look what I've done with David. I can do the same thing for you. So in verse 5, God uses David as a comparison to how the Israelites will be to the world. They're in exile, they're without hope, but will again be built into a great nation, and they will call forth nations to take note of the power, love, and trustworthiness of God. God's relationship and care for the Israelites will be so well known that nations Israel don't even know uh, existed will run to them to learn of this great God. So then verse 6 and 7 is the crux of the matter. How does one find bread that fills and water that gives life? And the answer from Isaiah is, Seek and call on the Lord. Forsake your worldly ways. Forsake earthly thoughts. Return to God. There must be a fundamental change in how you think and how you live. Set your mind on heavenly things, Paul would say, and set your life to heavenly pursuits. Verse 8 and 9 is it's a cool passage, a little cool couple verses, and it could go a couple different ways. First, uh, the first way you could take this is that our earthly wisdom simply cannot compare to God's wisdom. God's thoughts are too high. His ways are too high for us to comprehend. But in seeking the Lord, our thoughts are elevated, and our way of life is elevated. So being raised, our life. So in being raised in Christ, our life and thoughts are raised as well. If you have children, you can grasp this fairly easily. If you've ever had a conversation with your kid and in the middle of it they say something so far out in left field that you just stop and think, that's it, they're, they're aliens, they, they don't have human logic. Um, you you want to ask them, how did you come up with that? Uh, and then you pray that your children will desire or will, will attain some, some degree 
of your thought and your higher ways of living. But the only way that happens is in communion with you and fellowship with you. As they grow older, they learn your thoughts and your ways. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, you know, present your bodies as living sacrifice to the Lord. Then you will be able to discern uh, God's pleasing and perfect will. And so that is, um, that is the point uh, that in fellowship with God, we are transformed and changed. The other way you could take that is that the Israelites are in exile. So maybe they don't understand how they can go from exile to being prominent players in the national scene again. And then God says, look, my, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways higher than your ways. Just trust in me and we'll make this happen. So those are the two ways you can read those last two verses. So if you're going to preach this, an outline could go something like this. I'm not good with alliteration or catchy titles or subtitles, so that's your job. But first, God offers abundance. Every single one of us has experienced exile from God. Scripture says that we're at enmity with God. We are or were living in such a way that we pursued earthly things that have left us empty. We've yearned for contentment and purpose. We haven't found it. One of the great writings in all of Western one of the great sentences in all of Western civilization comes from Augustine. He writes this, You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy, because you have made us and drawn us to yourself. Our, heart, our hearts are restless until it rests in you. So the offer that we have from Isaiah is uh, that we have abundance and rest in God. The second point could be we, instead of pursuing God's abundance, pursue scarcity. Our human existence is marked with a battle between power, money, sex, fame, and that fleeting good time, right? And this is where you could use the Ecclesiastes passage. Uh, or you could bring in t uh, Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on, Sermon on the Mount about materialism and storing up treasures. Uh, third, God is faithful, right? God offers abundance. We pursue scarcity, but God is faithful. So if you look at history and God's providence, you can, uh, you can simply look what God did for David. You can bring out what God did for the nation of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt into a great nation. You can look what God has done with the church in general, starting with 12 scaredy cats and then uh, conquering the world. Uh, you could make this personal. What has God done in your life? And say, this also God can do for you. But God is faithful. He offers abundance and he's true. And then the way to uh, begin living this life of abundance is through redemption and transformation. As Isaiah says, seek God, call upon God, forsake the ways of scarcity, and be transformed into God's way of thinking, God's way of living. Repent in the name of Jesus. Again, you can do that Romans 12, 1 and 2 passage. Uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices so that you might know the will of God. That brings us to Psalm 63. It's actually verses 1 through 8 is the lectionary. Um, I say this almost every week. Resist the temptation to make the psalms exegetical. It's sometimes it's called for, but the psalms are prayers and praises, and they're and they lose a little power when you try to piecemeal it together. You've probably never read a love letter from your spouse with the thought of exegeting it. You've probably never read a sweet note of thanks from your friends or children looking for ulterior motives or meanings. It means what it says. Simply enjoy it, and so goes the psalms. With that being said, you can continue the theme of Isaiah because the psalmist has found bread that fills and water that never runs dry. He is no longer a quenched soul because he's found abundance in God. So to preach this, 
Um, I would say illustrate a time when you were in a desert where the sweet waters of God's grace filled you. And be concrete in your illustration so that people can know what it means to seek God or for a soul to thirst for God. One illustration that I could use, and I'll share with you, uh, for me, personally, a time of deep uh, wilderness wandering for me, uh, I, I was at a loss. I had gotten to a point to where I even took a semester off seminary because I was just struggling in life. I was backsliding, I was losing purpose and, and all kinds of things, and an opportunity came up for me to open up a restaurant for my company in Texas, so I did. I decided I was going to take four months, five months, and live in Texas and open up some restaurants. While I was there, I didn't have any family with me. I didn't have any real friends, just people I was training. Um, I wasn't married at the time, and I had no significant relationship. I was lonely. I was doing you know, some things that were not healthy for me, I'm sure. Um, nothing was right in my soul, and spiritually, I was bone dry. Easter was coming up, and so I started looking for some churches that I could attend that were near my hotel. And I found a Lutheran church within walking distance. And during Holy Week, they had a Monday Thursday service. And I also noted that they had an Easter sunrise service. They've always been, uh, Easter sunrise has always been special to me. I'd never been to a Lutheran church before, so I decided, hey, why not? Uh, because it was in walking distance and, and the schedules worked out well. So I went to this service and it was my first experience of a stripping of the altar service. I didn't have a clue what was happening. The minister read from the Gospels on the night which Christ was betrayed and washing of the feet and the new commandment and the Last Supper. We took communion and then we went and sat back down and someone began to read Psalm 22 very slowly. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for whatever reason, this was the utterances of my heart. And systematically, the church was transformed from glory to humiliation as that psalm was read and the palms were gone, and the pyramids were gone, and the colorful banners were gone, and the Bibles were taken away, and the hymnals were taken away, and the Christ candle was taken away, and, and other things. It was the first time in my life where I identified with the fact that Jesus identified with me, that he was tempted in every way, and he also felt the sheer desperation of need or desire for fellowship with God. I thought about this service and this ceremony all weekend. I worked 14 hours on Friday, 14 hours on Saturday, but thank goodness my company was was gracious to me and allowed me off on Sunday so I could celebrate Easter. And I remember going back to that Lutheran church and the sunrise service, and the, tra- and the, and the transformation of the sanctuary was so stark. All the banners were back, but then there were lilies, and everybody was dressed in their their clothes and it was bright and I remember the minister started with Christ is risen indeed or Christ is risen hallelujah and uh, the congregation responded Christ the Christ is risen indeed hallelujah hallelujah and my soul began to stir and then the organ this church had a big organ the organ started playing this lively music and the congregation began to sing Christ the Lord is risen today. And I remember between the third and fourth verse, the organist and the pianist just fanfared it. And, and my soul was welling up in me. And I thought to myself, this is what heaven is going to be like. I want this so badly for my life. And then that fourth verse, uh, uh, 
my soul simply saying, Soar we now where Christ is led, following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise, ours the cross, the grave, the skies, hallelujah. At that moment I was risen. And there have been uh, very few moments in my life that I've had greater clarity of what it means to seek and to, to be in fellowship with God and, and to have an overabundance of, of joy and, and, and connection with God. It was a vision that had transformed me. And I can say that while I've backslidden on occasion and I've done things that I've not needed to do, I've never felt forsaken or in a dry desert because I know what it means for my flesh to faint for the living God. And I have that vision to live by and it hasn't, I hadn't turned around. And then second, uh, when God's grace instills a vision in your life, there are certain practices that begin in your life. And so the psalmist uh, says, my lips will praise you. I will bless you. I will lift up my hands. I'll call upon your name. My mouth praises you with joyful lips. I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So if you want to, you can expound on each of those. Uh, because once the psalmist had the vision, this is what he did in his life. And then the third point, uh, when a holiness comes or a vision of holiness comes in your life, vulgarity becomes vulgar and you don't want it in your life. Ugliness seems out of place um, and, and you, you won't stand for it. You, you'll pursue uh, transformation in all of your life because you've, you're, you've tasted what's good and you don't want anything of what's bad. So that leads us to the epistle passage. Uh, Paul speaks about, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-13. through 13. Paul speaks about spiritual food and drink, but he connects it to the effectiveness of that food and drink, right? The faith is with which you take food and drink. Uh, maybe he's talking about hypocrisy in this passage, uh, because if we take the Isaiah passage that says, don't spend money on bread and on that which doesn't satisfy, or labor for that which doesn't uh, satisfy, Presumably, he was speaking of those who were simply apart from God and had no interest in spiritual things, right? That's what Isaiah was talking about. But here in this passage, Paul makes a point to say that the Israelites coming out of Egypt passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them. So maybe this passage is about the attitude of the Christian. Um... When we all take communion, we drink of that spiritual drink and we eat of that spiritual bread. Um, we're all in fellowship. We're all claiming the name of Christ, but maybe we're not taking some things as serious as God wants us to take them. Maybe we're allowing simple ritual to get in the way of heart transformation or relationship with God. And I would like to take just a brief moment to say, just because some people did not take the rituals and the blessings of God seriously doesn't mean that the rituals themselves are of no effect. It means that people have not turned their heart toward God. The rituals and traditions are pillars, but they're dangerous when people use them for their own purpose and gain and disregard holiness or the relationship with God. John Calvin speaks about the effectiveness of the Lord's Supper being based on a spiritual union with Christ. So if you have your dictionary ready, I will read to you uh, what... John Calvin says, I have read the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which also means that I have read most of Merriam-Webster, uh, but this is what uh, John Calvin writes about uh, taking the Lord's Supper without faith. Just as the light of the sun, while it invigorates a living and animated body, produces effluvia in a carcass, 
so it is certain that the sacraments where the spirit of faith is not present breathes mortiferous rather than vital odor. All right, so for those of you who do not have your Merriam-Webster handy, uh, this reads something like, just as the light of the sun invigorates things that are alive, it produces offensive odor in a dead body. So also, when faith is not present at the sacraments, it lets off an aroma of death rather than a pleasant living odor. So if we take God's blessings in hypocrisy, it leads to death, not life, and it corrupts the fellowship of the church. That's what happened in Corinthians. It is very much like playing with fire. It can warm and, and extend life, uh, and you can use it for everything, or it can burn and spread death. So then the context by which you can preach, that's the context by which you can preach the passage. And you can go a little further in the very next chapter is when Paul says, examine yourselves before you partake of the Lord's Supper. If you want to veer off the lectionary for a while, maybe you can use the rest of uh, this Lent to preach about what it means to examine yourself. Dig into what Paul exactly means. I've been a pastor long enough to hear what some church members think Paul means, and there is certainly need for instruction in that subject. And so um, there is something about hypocrisy and attitude of those who are partaking and using God's spiritual blessings. Um, but as always with Scripture, attitude is connected with action. And so, sticking with just this passage, you could preach on examples of the evil that we're warned from desiring. So maybe take a Sunday to preach on the desires of holiness. And Paul gives us examples of unrighteousness so that we might know uh, at least what holiness isn't. Verse 7 speaks of idolatry and defines idolatry as idleness and a lack of purpose. Verse 8 speaks of sexual immorality. Verse 9, putting Christ to the test as the Israels put God to the test. And then verse 10 speaks about ingratitude and complaining. But don't end your sermon in moralism because that's not the gospel. Moralism leads to hypocrisy, which leads to pride, which leads to destruction, and a haughty spirit, which leads to a fall. Paul encourages the believers of Corinth to connect their strength of standing to God, who will provide the strength to overcome or provide a way out of temptation. And it's through the right attitude of faith and a relationship with God that we ascertain that power, strength, and that way out. And then that leads us to the gospel passage, uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Repentance is obviously the theme of this passage. And since we're in the season of Lent, I would preach this as a moment of warning to care for your own spirituality. Some people came to Jesus with the story of some Galileans who were murdered in the act of worship. And then there was some further wickedness in that their blood was uh, mingled in with the blood of the sacrifices that were being made at the time of their murder. But Jesus sees through them. They were wondering how great of sinners those Galileans must have been to die in such a way. But Jesus says, do you think they were worse sinners than any other Galileans? And then Jesus furthers the point by saying, what about those who died because the Tower of Siloam fell? Uh, the 18 that died. Were they worse than anyone else? And Jesus' answer was, essentially he didn't answer it. He said no, I guess is the inference. But Jesus goes a step further and says, why are you worried about how bad they were? Look at yourself. Look inward. You are your own biggest problem. Repent, or the death they suffer, or your death, will be like theirs. And Jesus wasn't simply talking about physical death. Jesus was talking about a spiritual death. We live in a world where we can be so preoccupied with others' failures that Jesus says, don't do that. This is about you. Don't give yourself a pass. And so maybe this Sunday, uh, help people look inward. It's a hard thing to do, and you will need the power of the Holy Spirit so that they will be able to understand how to look inside themselves. And there's also 
a sense of the fleeting nature of life in this passage. How oftentimes our deaths and the deaths of people around us are affected by things completely outside of our control. The Romans killed worshipers. A tower fell. In the next part of our scripture, the master decides time is up for an un- unfruitful fig tree. We don't know when our time will end, and so Jesus says, Repent, live well while we have life. So in the next verses of the passage, Jesus speaks of a fig tree that hasn't borne fruit in three years. This passage sounds very harsh, but there is a moment of grace amongst the repent and perish vocabulary and uprooting the tree that hasn't borne fruit. Um, I don't know how far you take this, but Jesus' public ministry spanned about three years. Uh, Luke 13 is the beginning of Jesus' passion, so it could be that Jesus is making a direct parallel between his public ministry and the three years where people hadn't borne fruit and they haven't repented. And if so, Jesus is saying time has run out. It's time to cut the tree down. But the gardener insists that the master give it just one more year. The gardener will dig around and put manure on it, give it just one more year. So the gardener then becomes an advocate for the fruitless tree and pledges to tend to the tree to give it nourishment. And then if after an extra year uh, and that extra attention that's paid to the tree, if it doesn't bear fruit, cut it down. And so just a simple outline could be God's call to repentance is personal. It's about each of us as individuals uh, and our sin, not the sin of other people. And then second, the time for repentance is now. Today is the day of your salvation. Who knows what happens next? And then third, repentance, if you will. You can, again, I'm not good at titles or subtitles. Repentance is the manure of bearing fruit, right? So by your fruits you shall know them. And then if your soil is good, if you attend to spiritual things, God uh, will bear fruit in your life. And so I've taken a lot of time today. That's all I got for you. I want to pray, and and, uh, we'll see you again next week or hear from you again next week. Uh, Gracious God, I pray this week for our ministers, our Christian educators, anyone who finds themselves an influence who will be rightly dividing the Word of God. Give us clarity of mind. Give us a power in our speech. Give us strength in our hands that we might go out and do your will and be agents of transformation in this world. Amen.